You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. This week, we saw the chief executive for Hong Kong, John Lee, and his senior officials take to the stage and announce that Hong Kong was back. Friends around the world, everyone in Hong Kong, we can't wait to say hello personally to each and every one of you. See you in Hong Kong. It was the unveiling of a new tourism promotion campaign, including 700,000 free airline tickets to be given away worldwide. And it happened about the same time we marked an anniversary of sorts. It's been a three-year journey for us in Hong Kong, all starting on January 28th, back in the year 2020, with an email to the entire newsroom here at the South China Morning Post. The email was short and to the point, basically... Pack up your computer now. You are hereby ordered to work from home for the next two weeks. We had just enough time to round up some reporters and get them into the studio, set up some microphones and record our very first episode on this developing story. I'm talking to you in an office that's normally buzzing with reporters from 10 different desks here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Over the Lunar New Year holiday, it normally gets fairly quiet in here, but over the past week, one desk in particular has been powering through the public holiday. I'm talking about my colleagues on the China desk here at the SCMP, who have been covering what is one of the biggest health crises in China since the outbreak of SARS in 2003. And while many of them live here in Hong Kong, There are many others in our team who are either based in mainland China or who have spent the Lunar New Year holiday visiting friends and family there. In this podcast, we're going to give you an insight into what it has been like for the past week for our journalists covering the Wuhan coronavirus. One day later, the number of confirmed infections in Hong Kong rose to 10 as the tally across the mainland surged above 6,000 which was more than the total reported by China during the SARS crisis of 2003. And for Hong Kongers, there was no need to wait for the WHO to make an announcement for how serious this was. This is what Ian Yang, a senior journalist who covered the spread of SARS in Hong Kong for The Post, had to say in February 2020. For people from Hong Kong who were in Hong Kong at the time of SARS, There's nothing particularly unusual about wearing face masks. And so when we see the current um, concerns about the novel coronavirus, that reawakens all of those memories, all those collective fears, and also all of those group behaviors that were prevalent at the time of SARS in 2003, when face masks were were not just commonplace, they were everywhere. Everyone wore, wore face masks pretty much all the time outside. And again in Hong Kong, And here we are, three years into the spread of a coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2 and the disease it causes called COVID-19. Now, if you're under the age of 30 and live outside of Hong Kong, you might not know about SARS. Severe acute respiratory syndrome is caused by another type of coronavirus and was Hong Kong's first experience with such infections. 
It spread from the city of Foshan across the border in Guangdong province and was brought into Hong Kong before spreading to 14 other countries. Back in 2003, the world was introduced to the chair of infectious diseases at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health, Professor Yun Kwok-yong. This is him being interviewed in his laboratory in 2003. The difficulty is you don't know what you're treating at that time. <laughs> All right, the patient having fever and the pneumonia, and we haven't found, a, found anything at that time. So everybody is very anxious, uh, trying to find what is going on, on wrong with the, with, the, with the patients. 1,700 people were infected in Hong Kong and 300 people died. And Hong Kong scientists led the world in isolating and identifying the SARS coronavirus. But the world moved on. People forgot about SARS. There was the swine flu, MERS, Ebola, all things that felt far, far away and seemed to happen to someone else. But in Hong Kong, time and money was spent building a world-leading team of epidemiologists and virologists. This is what HKU Professor Yun had to say about SARS in 2018. It will come back if you open up all the wildlife markets in China again. And you can see that things always repeat itself. If it comes uh, many years later, all the vigilance will be gone and the effect is much bigger. All the measures that we are now taken would be so downgraded that uh, when it comes, we would not be able to handle it. But the wildlife markets were open up again, and history repeated itself. But that's not the only warning that came from SARS that seems to have been forgotten. Here's Dr. Fanny Lam, a specialist in developmental behavioral pediatrics, on what she observed in the wake of SARS. When we look back 20 years ago when we had the SARS, so we had a group of students that um, experienced SARS. And when this group of students grow up and they became teenagers, we saw a lot of obsessive compulsive disorders, anxiety, depression during their adolescence. Over the last few weeks, Hong Kong has removed nearly all of his pandemic measures. Border checkpoints with mainland China were opened. The massive purpose-built quarantine facilities with tens of thousands of beds were closed. People no longer have to take PCR tests on arrival at the Hong Kong airport. But we still have to wear masks outside. And Professor Yun took to the airwaves again making a public call for an inquiry to ensure that we had learned from our experience of the past three years. Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee had this to say in response. Some individuals believe that there is need for us to conduct an independent investigation into the various anti-epidemic measures. Some others disagree, and I disagree too. We've learned a lot from reporting on this pandemic, how it changed us as people, how it changed our city of Hong Kong as well as mainland China, and how things are never going to be quite the same again. Hello and welcome to this Inside China podcast. My name is Holly Chick, science reporter for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. 
And on this third pandemic anniversary, we want to share with you some of the things that made our experience of the pandemic very different here in Hong Kong. I, I will have to say it very clearly that we have no plans for any widespread city lockdown as uh, you have seen. Right now, I, I don't think there's much public health rationale for restricting incoming travel, given we've got so much infection locally already. Prior to this, the Hong Kong University had done research in hamsters that showed that hamsters can get the virus. And as I've said, we've used them as models on which to base human research and treatment on. There's another story that has people talking right now that is the truck drivers with fresh fruit and vegetables unable to get across the border into Hong Kong. It's almost like everywhere is high risk. You've got, you know, hundreds, thousands of people lining up for compulsory testing. People are waiting hours. And at the moment, the government's still very focused on containment measures, for example, finding every case and isolating them in hospital. And we know that very soon that's not going to be possible. Now is the situation where we see other parts of the world, whether it be the UK, the United States, even Singapore, that seem to be much more open than Hong Kong. And we are finding that over 40% of our membership personally feel that they are considering leaving Hong Kong. And some of the interesting things we learned from our colleagues reporting on the pandemic in mainland China. Twenty twenty is supposed to be a year of celebration for China. Okay, Xi Jinping has made it very clearly that twenty twenty is a milestone in China's quest to regain this national, um, you know, rejuvenation, the China dream. But this year happens to be one of the worst years in memory for most Chinese people. Lots of well-known uh, academics inside China have issued open statements calling for greater protection for freedom of speech. Their main argument is that if Dr. Lee was not wanted by police and if Dr. Lee uh, enjoyed freedom of speech, then his message would be taken seriously. People are using Morse code and sharing a link to decoding their Morse code to kind of avoid uh, the AI censorship. The uh, Taylor Swift fans, they opened up donation channels and then their fans uh, donated the money and then they used that money to buy medical equipment. And they called up each individual hospitals asking them what kind of equipment they needed. So a lot of that has been very helpful. And then the Taylor Swift fans were telling me they did it because they were inspired by their idol. They said Taylor Swift was very um, charity minded. She encourages her fans to do charity work. And why are these Australians coming forward to help test a Chinese made vaccine? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Typically, uh, there's different types of volunteers, but what we've the common theme we've seen in, in this situation is a real passion from many people to contribute to finding a solution. During the opening ceremony of the World Cup in Qatar, we didn't see anyone wearing a mask, and we didn't hear that they needed to do PCR testing. Do they live on the same planet as us? Doesn't the coronavirus affect them? We were told to leave our office on January the 28th in 2020. 
But if you were in America or Australia, the first time you learned COVID wasn't just something happening in China. It was probably thanks to this guy. Somebody who you will know by name, Tom Hanks. Academy Award-winning actor Tom Hanks and his wife, the actress Rita Wilson, have announced that they have both tested positive for coronavirus. That was back in March in 2020, and the beginning of what we had already experienced here in Hong Kong. The infodemic of misinformation and rumors spreading online via social media and messaging apps. It's got to do with trust. Even though uh, supermarket chains in Hong Kong and government, many authoritative sources told the public that there is no shortage of toilet paper, so we don't need to panic. Um, it didn't work because number one, when people panicked in the first place, when that rumor spread really wide, they rushed to supermarket and started buying toilet papers, which actually created the temporary shortage of that particular item. And people are taking photos of empty shelves after empty shelves, and those are on the internet, and people share those. That's used as an evidence to prove that there will be actual shortage. So it's it has become a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, and it's still ongoing because people still when you hear the news, let's say nearby supermarket has stocks, people flock to those supermarket and buy everything in one, two hours. So I think it's a self-created rumor that now is becoming true. That's Masato Kuchimoto, an expert in news literacy, fact-checking and misinformation research in Asia, speaking to us back in 2020. By March that year, the post offices in Hong Kong were full of people queuing up to send large boxes of toilet paper, masks and cleaning supplies back home to Australia, Canada, the UK and Europe. And in April of 2020, live music was banned in Hong Kong because it might lead to the spread of COVID. In July of 2020, the Hong Kong government began temporary bans on any airline flying into Hong Kong whose passengers tested positive for coronavirus. The government also attempted to ban eating inside restaurants, a ban which lasted for just 24 hours after images of everyday Hong Kongers forced to squat in the streets to eat their lunches caused outrage. And things started getting really complicated for anyone wanting to fly into or out of Hong Kong. Quarantine, seven days, 21 days, 14 days, what was allowed, what was not allowed, what kind of testing you needed, all these requirements. It was so confusing and it, it, it basically changed every week, every two weeks. Over the past three years, an estimated 200,000 people packed their belongings and left Hong Kong. Many of them expats, otherwise known as people and their families, who came from overseas to live and work here. But for the 7 million of us who still live in Hong Kong, life went on. And there were some things that we did a little bit differently to the rest of the world, which is what you're going to hear about in this special podcast mini-series. While the government spent time and effort closing beaches, taping off outdoor play equipment, locking up outdoor basketball courts, there was one thing it was not doing successfully, vaccinating the elderly. 
the vaccination rate for the elderly people in Hong Kong it remained quite low compared to the overall vaccination rate in Hong Kong. And mostly they are concerned with the side effects, especially those who have chronic illnesses. And while the rules for what people could do outside or inside in gyms, cinemas, restaurants, bars and cafes were changing from week to week, something was happening online. Other countries experienced a wave of conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID, anti-fax paranoia, fears of 5G phone towers, or libertarian hatred of governments. But here in Hong Kong, we saw Facebook and Twitter adopted by volunteers dedicating to providing quick and accurate information for those trying to keep up with the changing restrictions, for those attempting to navigate Hong Kong's hotel quarantine system, and for those just needing some support to get through their experience of COVID. Well, it just became a community and everybody was following me and giving me bits of information I didn't know as well. And at the time, it was a one-man show. It was just me there doing it all day. And it wasn't formulated like it is now with the same stats every day at the same time pinned and people could access it. I was just putting up what I knew at the time. And as the years went on, I met more people. I Twitter DM and I would chat and then we'd catch up on WhatsApp and talk. And that's worth remembering because this pandemic is not quite over. And these people are still volunteering their time to help everyone here in Hong Kong and those flying in from overseas. Over the past three years, there are things that have happened here in Hong Kong, which have taken us from the sublime to the ridiculous, to the deadly. In November of 2020, a 75-year-old woman reported testing positive for COVID and that she had most likely became infected while visiting a dance club. Within days, this case would be known as the first of what became one of Hong Kong's largest super-spreader events, involving more than 700 confirmed cases and it led to a series of revelations about what bored, wealthy women do behind closed doors during the day in not just one, but a vast network of venues across Hong Kong. While Hong Kong's musicians found their profession had essentially become illegal under Hong Kong's zero-COVID regulations, and bars and nightclubs were banned from opening, it turns out every day across the city, there were places packed with couples foxtrotting, tangoing, and... Cha-cha-cha! Doing the cha-cha in places that had slipped between the regulations banning gatherings of people in venues. Our story on SCMP.com quoted Mac Hon Kai, chairman of the Hong Kong Association of Senior Citizens, who said... The women tend to like these activities more because they can dress up and socialize. They're bored and want to entertain themselves. Some of the wealthier women will hire instructors and practice so they can impress others when they go social dancing. We also quoted George Yip Wai, the president of the Hong Kong Dance Sports Association, explaining what was happening. Their husbands don't dance. They prefer to play ball games like golf. So these dance venues become a vibrant recreational market. It was a market for sure. As the saying goes, it takes two to tangle. And to give you an idea of how this worked in reality, in one of these dance clubs, nearly two-thirds of the male visitors who tested positive were aged in their 30s. 
while three quarters of the women linked to the club were in their 60s and 70s. But the revelations kept coming. It turns out that young male dance instructors were being loaded onto speedboats across the border and smuggled into Hong Kong to dance with wealthy female clients who would pay for their travel. We learned some of these women rewarded their dance instructors with luxury gifts such as brand new iPhones, Rolex watches, and designer clothing. But don't get the wrong idea of what was happening. In the words of one Hong Kong woman who spoke to us, who claimed she had been ballroom dancing twice a week for the past 19 years, these women weren't looking for anything more than a fun way to exercise. They don't work anymore, but they don't want to just play mahjong because it is bad for their health. So they come to dance to exercise. Some ladies are very mature and from very wealthy families. But they're serious about dancing. They go to dance, not for intimacy. And it wasn't just wealthy retired women involved in this dance floor subculture either. Contact tracing showed retirees from all walks of life across Hong Kong were part of this super spreader event, which led to COVID outbreaks and fatalities in private hospitals, housing estates, and aged care facilities. But not everyone was lucky enough to find a loophole in Hong Kong's zero COVID regulations. In December of 2021, two former Cathay Airline attendants were each sentenced to eight weeks in jail for breaching COVID-19 quarantine rules, which had required them to stay at home for three days after being tested on their return to Hong Kong. The evidence against them included the fact that they had infected a total of nine people. In January 2022, one employee and one customer of a local pet shop tested positive for COVID and thus began one of the weirdest chapters in Hong Kong's pandemic story. There's a growing outcry in Hong Kong over hamsters. The government issued a call order, a euthanization order for small pets, including hamsters, over COVID-19 transmission fears. Eleven hamsters in that pet shop also tested positive for COVID. Health authorities said there could have been a hamster-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. So the government imposed an import ban on small animals, including hamsters, and announced it would kill all hamsters bought after December 22nd. Dozens of hamster owners complied with the order. They showed up in the new territories, lining up in front of an animal management center with hamster cages in their hands. One by one, they emerged from the building with empty cages. They have surrendered their hamsters to the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Conservation. My son has been crying all morning at wouldn't stop because you are now telling him that we are taking the hamster away to be euthanized. We have to take away his beloved pet and send it to die. To him, it's like a family member, a friend. But a call order also sparked outrage. 
more than 25,000 people signed a petition calling for it to be scrapped. And then we found out about Hong Kong's hamster underground network. On Facebook, there was the Gao Gao Chongsu Guanju Zhou, translated as the Rescue Hamsters Concern Group. The group's 14,000 members would share where hamsters were being ditched, how many hamsters they could adopt into their homes, and where they could get hamster food and bedding supplies. A similar group of nearly 3,000 people also existed on Telegram. One person had offered to put their Photoshop skills to use by editing purchase receipts to indicate the pets were bought before December 22nd. This would mean the hamsters would be exempted from the call order. Some volunteers also tried to intercept owners who were on their way to hand over the hamsters. Don't listen to the government. You can hand over your hamsters to us instead. Don't cry, we will care for the hamster to old age. Just to note, hamsters usually live for two to three years. Since last January, more than 23,000 hamsters were culled. And now, one year later, the government has announced the import ban on hamsters would be lifted. We're going to hear more about Hong Kong's experience of social media and more of how the pandemic and the zero-COVID policies have changed the city in our next two episodes. But right now, I want you to hear from someone who has reported on this podcast from outside the closed wet market in Wuhan, from the streets of Shanghai, and from his apartment during the 64-day Shanghai lockdown in April last year. Thomas, you first reported from Wuhan in 2020, and since you've been traveling across the country, have you had a moment to reflect on what you've seen over the past years? Uh, From time to time, yes. I think the 2020 and 2021, I think life was largely normal, except that overseas travel is almost impossible. But then 2022... It just feels like a really uh, brutal, practical joke. So in your extended video piece on YouTube, marking the end of the three years of restrictions in mainland China, you hold up your phone and explain how the QR code used to be the center of your life. And you couldn't go anywhere without scanning the code and getting a PCR test within 72 hours. How did that experience change you, do you think? This QR code exists since, I think, mid-2020, but it was not very seriously enforced until after the Shanghai lockdown. So after the Shanghai lockdown, you have to go anywhere, scan it, uh, have someone check your QR code, you register your movement everywhere. So after the lockdown, I think not just for me, but also a lot of people are afraid to go out, to sit down and have a meal. Because there's one incident in our Shanghai bureau where one colleague had a hot pot somewhere. And then 10 days later, the police station called that, that you are a close contact of a confirmed case. You need to be sent to central quarantine. And where are you now? I'm now in the Shanghai bureau. And then whoever was in that space was sort of sentenced to, I think, three or four days of home quarantine. You know, they have a sensor placed outside their door. 
So um, that's the atmosphere. That the even going out for a meal is full of uncertainty. I feel like even after they dropped the restrictions, the quarantine, all those shenanigans, I think I don't know where I should go. I'm reluctant to move my feet around. Before I came back to Hong Kong, like after almost three years, I actually feel reluctant to leave Shanghai. So I guess the lockdown does something to you that you know, I'm safe in this space. I don't want to go anywhere else. So I think that's the very noticeable differences. And you spoke about the anxiety of getting a yellow code and how it meant you couldn't go anywhere except to get PCR tests day after day. That was the experience of so many people across mainland China. So, what is the legacy of that? I don't know if there's a legacy of that because that that the whole thing just gone overnight. Some stories of evading people checking your QR code and just feeling a little bit of just a tiny bit of adrenaline rush after you dodge a security guard and get inside like a restaurant without someone looking at your code. As far as legacy, there's not much. Yeah, just some memories. Good and bad, yeah. I think the code system just went away overnight. So were people questioning what was this all about for two years? Yes, definitely. I have a lot of questions.、Uh, my local friends has a lot of questions, especially after the white paper protest and also after they just ditched all the restrictions in early December. And even so, after. The entire country just ran out of painkillers. I remember, like Argentina just won World Cup that day. We went to an Argentinian restaurant in Shanghai. There was this table behind us, and there's something, there's some loud chattering saying that oh, all those experts were telling us that COVID is steady, can kill your entire family. Now where are they now? Okay, and then the next day we got COVID. And then after we we recover from COVID, my girlfriend and I and we went out and have a hot pot. And then there was another table of locals behind us. They were speaking in Shanghainese, and my girlfriend was telling me they were saying, "Oh, we waste so much money on the testing and building all those giant makeshift hospitals. Now, you know, do we have enough money for anything else right now? You know, things like that." So, I think that in big cities, in big cities among Educated middle class, definitely, there's a lot of questioning going on. But sadly, I didn't talk to enough working class people to get a sense of what they they're feeling. But yeah, this is what I heard. There are some questions, I think. And you also mentioned that in Shanghai, the extended lockdowns left their mark on you and many other people. How did it change the way you shop for groceries, for instance? I think we dialed down a little bit on the、uh, stocking up on groceries. One thing because well we know the policy is is gone, and also because we're started to die out again. So the cooking oil, the salt, the sugar, they go down slower than before. So we are not buying as many food as we were like six months ago. But it just makes you realize how modern day urban life is actually a very fragile lifestyle. It can be gone. In the blink of an eye, so you know, toilet paper,、uh, shampoo, toothpaste, fresh water, McDonald's, snacks.、Uh, don't take those for granted. Yeah. When you left Hong Kong in 2019, you just spent six months in the streets as a frontline video journalist. You have been gone three years, and now that you're back in your hometown, has Hong Kong changed? 
Uh, I actually come back in 2020. I think it's after the lockdown of Wuhan. I came back to Hong Kong because I don't think we do the extent of COVID-19. But anyway, I think Hong Kong has changed, changed a lot. Uh, sometimes walking on the streets, you saw like walls with a little patches of paint here and there. I think every Hong Konger, not just journalists, they know was beneath the paint. There were not many tourists back in the end of 2019. So, but compared with pre-protest, pre-pandemic, yeah, the streets were a lot less crowded, but more people than I expected. Because well, you know, all the policy were gone, and people. I think kind of feel like going out again, so that that was actually good to see. Oh, uh, speaking of legacy of COVID, uh, I actually feel happy to see crowds of people right now. But that's actually, actually a good thing, right? I'm thinking about the comments of one of the expats in Shanghai that you interviewed. He said, "And even though right now a lot of interesting people have left, I'm still hopeful that Shanghai can be again what it used to be." Do you think Hong Kong can do the same? I think the events that happened in the past three or four years has forever left its mark on both cities. I think not just Hong Kong, not just Shanghai, but even the rest of the world. So I don't think we are ever going back to. I think for Shanghai is pre twenty twenty, for Hong Kong is pre twenty nineteen. We'll never just magically go back to where we were. And the frustrating thing is, I'm not even sure where we are going in the future. So, I guess this is what we would call a non-answer to your question. But that's all I got. Well, speaking of legacy, Thomas, you've left the records of what you've been reporting since the start of the pandemic. We'll follow your stories on YouTube. Just search for SCMP News, and we'll see more of your videos. Thanks. I'm just glad this is over. That's not quite the end of this episode of Inside China. We've got two more special episodes coming to you to mark this three-year anniversary of our pandemic coverage. Let me also give a big thank you to Mimi Lau and Kinling Lo, who hosted so many of our pandemic episodes in the first year of the pandemic, and did it from all sorts of locations across Hong Kong as we kept to COVID-safe guidelines. While the official announcement of Hong Kong's reopening to the world and the reopening of border checkpoints with the mainland are dominating headlines, there are still so many unanswered questions about what has happened over the past three years, and so many discussions about what happens next. As always, make sure to check in with our latest from our newsroom at scmp.com. Follow us on Twitter at scmpnews. My name is Holly Chick. Bye for now. <laughs>